and welcome to Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis. I'm Emma Nelson, and today's episode is the second in a special series on the Arcadis Sustainable Cities Index. We'll explore what it is, what it's uncovered, and how it can offer us a new vision of prosperity. Today, our focus is on the city that ranks number six, London. London is already such an exciting place to live, but at the moment, we have a long way to go. We'll hear from Arcadis City executives to find out what London can do to build a strong future. London needs to be really, really front-footed around what got us here over the last 30 years. Won't get us there in terms of the next 30 years. We'll examine the hefty list of priorities facing the capital. Clean London's air, make it more resilient to climate change, reduce flooding, make people healthier, make them happier. I think that is ultimately what everyone wants in life. And find out how Londoners can play their part. We need to think about how we work hand in hand with the citizen, I think, if we're really going to tackle climate change. That's all ahead on Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis. London has the pleasure and the challenge of being one of the world's biggest cities. But it's almost 2,000 years old, so it knows a thing or two about survival and adapting to change. Well, in the latest edition of the Arcadis Sustainable Cities Index, London sits in sixth place. And a little earlier, I was joined by the Arcadis UK Cities Director, Peter Hogg, to find out more. Peter, just explain to us, let's let's strip this back down to basics. What is your Sustainable Cities Index? So our Sustainable Cities Index is a view across 100 global cities to see how they are comparatively performing in terms of their journey towards sustainability. What does sustainability mean in this context? We kind of break that down into three pillars. We look at planet, we look at people, and we look at profit. There's 51 key data metrics that sit behind the comparison we do across those 100 cities. Add those together, and then you can really meaningfully look at how sustainable is a city and how, in the wider sense of the term, prosperous is it. Sustainability is often used as a sort of catch-all expression, and it's been so worn out, is that word. How did you go about trying to define it into those three more manageable and identifiable sections? We worked back from what is important to Arcadis, which is improving quality of life. That's our mission. That runs through our DNA and has ever since our foundation in the 1880s. So when we were thinking about how can quality of life be improved in those cities, we thought, well, what are the lenses through which you would look at improved quality of life? And then it became obvious that it was about planet, about people, and about profit. You're always at pains to say there are no winners and losers in this. But who won this year? (laughs) This year, we saw a very, very strong performance from the Nordic capital cities, doing really well in terms of their people proposition, doing really well in terms of their focus on decarbonisation and protecting the planet. Also, doing very well in terms of profit, and particularly inclusive profit, bringing all of their population along with them in terms of that journey towards prosperity. And how much is the size of a city a factor? Because, you know, you get the likes of Oslo and Copenhagen, which are not enormous cities, but seem to do the sustainability 
job very, very well. But then also quite high up in the index, we have the likes of Tokyo, Berlin, London, places which you would ordinarily think are a bit of a hard fight when you get there. That's right. Um, One can say that it is, of course, easier in a smaller, more cohesive uh, city. On the other hand, what we tend to find is where really large cities put their mind to it, they have the sheer resource and the horsepower, if you will, in order to make really big change happen. So if you look, for example, at Tokyo and London, they're two great examples of cities that have made really big calls on difficult, expensive things that they're going to do to improve stuff. London, for example, it's going back some years now, the introduction of the congestion charge and more progressively and more recently and progressively, the introduction of of ULES, for example. Those are big structural investments backed off into big community engagement programs to take large populations along with them. And that's the sort of thing that the really big cities can do. So let's take London. Really good, ranking extremely high on the environmental aspects of the SCI. But the people in the profit bid, they still have work to do. So what needs to be done in a place such as London to make sure that every aspect of sustainability is given equal weight? I think one of the key things that needs to be done is to really, really focus on the requirements and the expectations of people, of the citizens. So everyone is really surprised that London didn't do very well comparatively in the profit pillar. Everybody thinks, surely London is a globally leading financial centre. It must be sort of oozing money out of yeah, every street's port. Streets paved with gold, streets apparently. Streets paved with gold, exactly. But in reality, although London is doing very, very well commercially, the reason why it falls back is because it's lost a little bit of focus on making sure that all 8.9 million Londoners are included on that profit and prosperity journey. And it's the lack of inclusivity that pulls London down in that particular metric. And going back to the index itself, where is it that every city could do better? Is there one little thing that if every mayor or administration just tweaked or pushed or focused on, then actually everybody would be lifted up? I would suggest that it would be around the topic of of making high-quality, long-term investments in the infrastructure that reduces carbon consumption, be that transport infrastructure, housing infrastructure, social infrastructure. Put the investment in that area, because that over the long term is what will determine how well your city performs. Everything from a charging point to an extra tree. Precisely so. Well, that was Peter Hogg there. And not long ago, Peter and I went down to the offices of London Councils, not far from City Hall in the south of the capital. And there we met Alison Griffin, the organisation's chief executive. London Councils is the umbrella association for Greater London's 32 boroughs and for the City of London. It's an organisation which faces no shortage of challenges, both big and small. So I began by asking where Ali begins when it comes to addressing the issues facing London. So you begin with the issues that are facing residents currently, whether that be housing, finding work, ensuring it's good work, 
and beginning to tackle net zero to ensure that we are a sustainable city for the future. One of the areas we're focusing our energies on is how do we begin to retrofit uh, the domestic uh, properties, so those that councils run, the council housing, but also working with housing associations and you know private owners as well of their properties on how do we get ready to ensure that we can adapt to climate change but also reduce our carbon emissions as a city. Peter, the fact that we have prioritised the environment and net zero so quickly in our conversation is sort of reflected in the way that London's position in the SCI sits, doesn't it? Because it does really, really well when it comes to taking a green approach. It certainly does. London is one of the highest performing cities in the index in terms of sustainability, in terms of uh, net zero carbon, in terms of all of those initiatives that move us towards those deadlines, those hard targets, which we ourselves didn't set. One of the things that really stood out in the Sustainable Cities Index was the fact that that was very largely being driven not necessarily by legislation, primarily, not necessarily by weight of investment, but by behaviour and culture and values from London citizens. What we're also seeing is that London needs to be very careful that its capital investment in the initiatives in order to deliver net zero carbon, in order to green the city, doesn't fall behind and therefore allow us to trip over. And how do you make that happen, Ali? Because you have citizens who want to go about their daily lives. They don't want to be bothered with making fundamental changes to their behaviour, nor do enormous companies. Well, I think some of the regulatory framework is actually challenging those larger companies to really consider their impact on the environment and their sustainability. And they recognise that their clients and consumers actually will demand that of them now and in the future. I think you're absolutely right. When you're thinking about energy prices and food at the moment in a cost of living crisis, it can feel all-encompassing. But we know there is a bit of a virtuous circle here in terms of how people's over-reliance on energy will need to reduce to help us meet the net zero target, but also can reduce the bills for those most impacted by cost of living crisis at the moment. I also think citizens, as Peter was saying, really are driven by uh, sustainability as an issue. And we see that in our polling ourselves at London Councils. But there is something about how we as local government, working with regional government, the national government and with business, voluntary sector and universities are actually beginning to talk in language that, you know, people understand and want to work with us to, you know, even me, I'll use the technical phrase retrofit. What does that really mean to the citizen? Really what they want is a warm home, uh, but also one that's cool in the summer now that we're getting much warmer summers. You know, it's all of those things. And we need to think about how we work hand in hand with the citizen, I think, if we're really going to tackle climate change. We'll hear more from Ali later to discuss what London needs to do to maintain and improve its position in the Sustainable Cities Index. 
But for now, I'm delighted to be joined by Sam Longman. Sam is Head of Sustainability and Corporate Environment at Transport for London. Hello, Sam. Hello. Nice to have you with us. And Peter Hogg. Back again around the microphone, UK City's director at Arcadis. Welcome back, Peter. Hello. Um, Sam, you're in a situation where you're, the fact that you're working with public transport is an inherently good thing because it is more sustainable than the private car. But what challenges do you find at TfL in terms of making London as green as it can be? Yeah, I mean, you're right about the uh, public transport. Um, you know, TfL does run most of London's public transport. But importantly, we're also London's strategic transport authority. So through the mayor, we set the policy for all of transport in London. But we're also a significant landowner and we have a lot of uh, properties which we rent out to people and we develop our own properties. We've got a huge workforce and huge supply chains. And essentially, we are woven throughout London. So central to what we want to achieve is to get as many people as possible using public transport and walking and cycling, whatever is left on the roads, we need it to be electric. But for us, it's much more than that. It's about how can we use our our scale, our position in London to help all of London transition to a sustainable city. And that that obviously does mean zero carbon, but it also means nature-rich, biodiverse, uh, adapted to climate change and inclusive as well. So give us a couple of examples about how you're actually going about doing that in terms of the way that the tubes run, the buses run. Yeah, so... We'll often design systems uh, around a white middle-class man who's got a nine-to-five job, is tech-enabled. But of course, you know, 50% of London is female. Most people are not uh, white British. So if we really need uh, as many people as possible to use our sustainable services, we need to make them attractive to as many people as possible. And the starting point for TfL is sustainability happens in place. It doesn't happen within kind of sectors or it's not about technology it's about the communities that you're trying to build so you know when we're thinking about our assets our land and how people use them we're thinking how are they connected to that wider community and what kind of place are we able to build it needs to be nature rich green it needs to be conducive for walking and cycling conducive for public transport but you also need to activate that place as well people quite often well very rarely in my opinion travel for the sake of it they're going somewhere. So when they get there, what are they going to do? How are they going to use that space? How are they going to feel safe? How are they going to feel healthy? Uh, and, and how are they going to use that space in order to have a prosperous life? The interesting thing here, though, is that if you are in London, it is a city that you generally naturally prioritise walking and public transport over the car. Is it true, Peter? I mean, where does that make London sit globally? That's probably true in the central activity zone. It's a bit in the middle for those of us who haven't been to London. uh, The bit (laughs) in the middle. But there's a whole lot of London that isn't the bit in the middle. And that's, I think, where the the challenge that Sam uh, quite rightly set out there is at its most significant. I think also there's some really interesting read-across between moving towards those more active travel modes, those more public transport-oriented modes in outer London, and the development of a more polycentric or more distributed city with communities feeling much more comfortable and much more able to live, work and play close to their their home environment. One thing that you are doing together is a zero carbon academy, which is, well, just tell us exactly what that's all about, please. Mm. A lot of people are very passionate about climate change. They want to do something. 
but quite often they don't know what they can do. So the Zero Carbon Academy, which was open to all of our staff, and we employed 27,000 staff, was an online live event. There was three bite-sized sessions. Uh, basically did an in high level but high quality introduction into the climate emergency, what the impacts are, what we need to do, but also how we do things. That's an important point we need to remember. Certainly for Transport for London, we're a £10 billion organisation. We spend over £6.5 billion in our supply chains. So we are doing a lot of construction, a lot of renewals, a lot of building and maintenance work. And we also need to think about how we can do it in a way that is uh, low carbon and, and low waste. And it's not just a zero carbon goal that we're working for, is it? There are some major challenges that society is facing at the moment. A is post-COVID. How do you rebuild a city which is inclusive and lifts everybody up, but also how do you do it in a green way? So to have a more sustainable and inclusive recovery is an incredibly tricky thing to do. So what's on your shopping list for that one, Sam? Well, first of all, I think the approach should be one of positivity. It is overwhelming and it is daunting, but I think there's a lot of positives in the transition we are now going through. And, and I think if you approach that with excitement about all the new things we're going to learn, all the new partnerships we're going to build, all the people we're going to meet, the new tools we'll develop, ultimately humans are creative and what a great opportunity to be creative. That's how we're approaching it. And I think there are also positives in terms of the outcomes that you get. So obviously we've got to deal with these challenges, but we shouldn't see it as a burden. This is an opportunity to clean London's air, make it more resilient to climate change, reduce flooding, make people healthier, make them happier. I think that is ultimately what everyone wants in life. There's also a key thing that you can do here, though, which is to create jobs for young people, which mean that everybody is involved, nobody gets left behind, but these jobs ultimately are green. Mm. So already in the green sector, it's predominantly white men. So if everyone's job is going to be green in the future, how are we going to engage that diversity, bring everyone in, because we need everyone. We want them to be engaged. And the benefits that it will deliver, as has been shown by the mayor's air quality policies, overwhelmingly benefits minority and deprived groups. So I think that's how we engage and that's how we leverage the relationship between social sustainability, environmental sustainability, and ultimately economic sustainability, because we will not prosper as a city unless we are moving towards sustainability. And the youth panel is a key part of this. Yeah, so we're very lucky at TfL to have a youth panel and they're independent 16 to 25-year-olds who basically we use to hold ourselves to account and they will do things like help us shape and they will provide critique to what we're doing and policies. But one of the really exciting things they've done, which Arcadis have helped us with, is their own exploration into that relationship between particularly diversity, equality and inclusion and environmental sustainability. Well, let's hear from a couple of the people lending their voices to the TfL Youth Panel. We can hear now from Lauren and Sunny. I think my favourite aspect of being on the Youth Panel is actually being able to discuss how the different projects impact young people. We want to champion inclusive travel for everyone. London is already such an exciting place to live, but at the moment we have a long way to go. We need to eliminate more of the barriers to travel and we need to work together to make sure that when we do solve some of these problems, we do this in a sustainable and inclusive way. The more inclusive travel we have, the easier it is for people to get around, the easier people's lives are, and it's just be- I just feel like 
everyone should have a better experience overall and no one should have to face hardships just trying to get around. And thanks there to Sonny. And before that, Lauren, two voices from the TFL youth panel there. It's important, Peter, that you get buy-in because if you don't get buy-in from the next generation, you don't get anything done. One of the things that any vibrant city needs to ensure that it doesn't allow to happen is to die of old age. And that's why initiatives like the TfL Youth Panel are so important. You mentioned at the beginning of this interview the fact that TfL is a major landlord and landowner, mm. which I think many people would be surprised mm. by. Um, how important is it that you don't necessarily just have a major stake in the transport network, or you are effectively the transport network, but you have a major stake in the ground that we stand on? Mm. I mean, we already do in that um, land use planning and transport planning are completely intertwined. And so we are heavily involved in developing and implementing the London plan in shaping development and regeneration of London. But also within that, we have our own development to bring to the table. So we're really thinking about where that development is going to be located next to uh, public transport or providing new public transport to enable new development. How important is it that you still have major landowners whose interest is the long-term benefit of a city rather than, dare I say it, selling off great swathes of property and land to external countries, companies who may have different priorities? I think it's very important. It's not to say that it's the only model for land land ownership and land use in London, but it is a very important one. And it's one that served London well actually, not just in the centre, but actually if you look out into you know, many of the sort of suburban areas of London. And if you look at, for example, organisations like the Howard Walden Estate, Peabody, Grosvenor, the great estates of London, they have been driving a sustainable and inclusive London long before those terms were in general use. And that has served London incredibly well and been an important platform for its growth. So at Arcadis, we are 110% supportive of what TfL are doing in terms of their, what I would describe as intelligent land use, and that focus not just on income or capital maximization from their land holdings, but actually stewardship, a genuine sense that through the work that they do, London can be made a better place. Sam, can I ask you a, a question more generally about, you know, all these strategies that you're coming up with? They all sound quite expensive. How do they get paid for? Well, there is always a challenge about um, how you will fund the transition. But the really important thing is that there is an inextricable link between environmental sustainability and financial sustainability. Sometimes there's an upfront cost, but quite often when you're talking about, for example, saving carbon, you're talking about reducing material use, you're talking about reducing energy use, and they have a cost in themselves. When you're talking about adapting a city, those floods, those heat waves, they have an economic impact. So I don't think there's a choice here. We have to create a sustainable city if we are to prosper in the longer term. And how willing are the people who supply you with your money, um, how willing are they to play along with all this? Because when you hear about transport for London, here in the United Kingdom at least, there is often the thought that transport for London is used as a bit of a political football by whoever is in Downing Street. And that 
budgets are often turned into something which have to be argued over publicly. And there's you in the background saying, we need to make this sustainable, whereas a lot of people are saying, please don't put the tube fares up because we're stuck enough when it comes to money. It's a tough call you've got to make, isn't it? I think it's tough for everyone. There, there isn't unlimited money. It's always a balance. But ultimately, the government, the mayor and TfL all want the same thing. We all want to build a sustainable future for civilization. And my thanks to Sam Longman, Head of Sustainability and Corporate Environment at TfL there. Here with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis. And we're looking at Arcadis Sustainable Cities Index. Today, the focus is on London. So let's hear again now from the conversation between Alison Griffin, Chief Executive at London Councils, and Peter Hogg from Arcadis. We talked about the importance of bringing everybody together, both from the public and private sector, to meet the city's challenges. I asked Peter who else was doing this well and who London could learn from. We've got some wickedly good examples of other cities who are working in tandem with their private sectors. One of the cities that performs super well in the index is, of course, Copenhagen in Denmark. One example of where Copenhagen is really stand out strong in this, it is in the introduction and implementation of low-carbon and no-carbon district heat networks. Why has that had such dramatic take-up? in Copenhagen, where we're looking at sort of 65 to 70% take up of no carbon heat networks, as opposed to 2% in London. It's quite simply because the government have committed to making that happen. The private sector have seen the commercial opportunity. And the citizens have got on board with it, because actually, they see that for the long term, they're going to be getting a significant benefit out of this. Peter Hogg there. I then went on to ask Ali what it's like to sell London as a place to invest in at the moment and how she makes sure that the capital really shows the world it's open for business. So I think we've got a really recent example of building a coalition around Opportunity London, which has brought together the City of London, the Mayor, all of the London boroughs, cross-party, it's got cross-party leadership, and then with businesses and some of the leading agencies in in London. And what that's about is ensuring that our global edge in terms of investment is maintained, that people know that we're open for business, that yes, there's always challenges politically, you know, terms, things come and go, but that London is a safe place to invest in and an exciting place to invest in for the future. Selling London as a place to invest is still a relatively easy task to undertake. London has a reputation, it has a brand, it still has a reputation for good and sound governance. What we have to be really super alive to is that we have an increasing number of very energetic, very, very compelling challenger cities Mm. that would love to eat London's Mm. lunch. We see, for example, Amsterdam being really, really focused on creating a really strong proposition to take life sciences Mm. investment away from London. Again, financial services are increasingly attracted to Paris, to Frankfurt. So London needs to be really, really front-footed around what got us here over the last 30 years won't get us there 
in terms of the next 30 years. But it's really important to create that shatteringly clear narrative on why London remains the most investable city in the world. And the sustainability and the ESG credentials of the city are absolutely central to that. What does London need to do to make sure that it not only maintains its momentum, but climbs even higher? So I think there's two areas of focus for London uh, to climb even higher in the index. And that's really related to the profit element, I think, around housing and housing inequality in London. And the spiralling costs, both for renters, actually more for renters than even home ownership in London. And that's one of our biggest drivers for the cost of living crisis in London that's different to the rest of the country is is rent levels here. We also have over 162,000 people currently living in temporary accommodation. And that's half of the country's homeless households. So we really need to be thinking differently again about housing and housing on so many levels and the other is health and well-being and we really saw that through the pandemic the disproportionate impact on particular communities and mental health in particular. Peter that's a big enough list that Ali's got to deal with do you want to add to that as well I mean there's infrastructure issues as well here I mean TfL does what it can but step outside from this office and it doesn't feel like a very clean city. I think we're seeing some really great things in London. One of the key behavioural ones that I think is fascinating, and this is individual and corporate behaviour, is the massive switch towards EV and alternative fuel vehicles, where London is out of sight ahead of any other city in the world. Hooray, fantastic. The challenge we've got is that the infrastructure to charge and to fuel those vehicles, it's beginning to lag dangerously behind. The grid provision that sits behind those charging points is wholly inadequate. And we'll get to the point where we have huge numbers of principally electric vehicles or hybrid electric vehicles in London, which will overload the grid and cause significant problems, not just to transportation, but to wider issues beyond. But ultimately, it's going to take private sector capital to make it happen. And that brings us to the end of today's programme. A warm thanks to all my guests, Arcadis UK Cities Director Peter Hogg, the Chief Executive of London Councils, Alison Griffin, Transport for London's Head of Sustainability and Corporate Environment, Sam Longman. And thanks also to Lauren and Sunny from TfL's Youth Panel. And if you want to get your copy of the Arcadis Sustainable Cities Index, then just head to arcadis.com where you can download it. But if you enjoyed that, then make sure you subscribe as well. You'll find fresh podcasts, all to do with the future of our cities, our communities and their recovery, popping up regularly at arcadis.com. You've been with Long Story Short, the Future Cities podcast from Arcadis. I'm Emma Nelson. Goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. (music) 